Welcome to Real Decarbonization, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry will lead into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the CEO of Adam and Teen Energy. This series of mini pods accompanies my new book, which is called Real Decarbonization, How Oil and Gas Companies Are Seizing the Low Carbon Future. And today I had the pleasure of speaking with Megan Hayes, who's Managing Director at Kimridge. Megan provides a really important perspective that I haven't had on the podcast yet, which is the investor perspective. As you'll hear, Megan is thoughtful and articulate and has just such an interesting range of experience. She holds a BA in political science and history from Texas Christian University. She has a certificate for the Executive Education for Sustainability Leadership Program from Harvard's School of Public Health. She served in roles for oil and gas companies in investor relations, ESG, and corporate communications. Companies such as Simarex Energy, Concho, and Approach Resources. You can learn more about Megan in our show notes, and I hope you enjoy my conversation today with Megan Hayes. Megan Hayes, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me on the Real Decarbonization Podcast. Hi, Tisha. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. I always enjoy getting a chance to talk to you, Megan, because you provide this perspective that is really important, the investor perspective. And in my book, I make a case that companies need to develop an actionable 10-year real decarbonization strategy. Not everyone's ready to do that. (laughs) Uh, A lot of companies aren't ready doing that. I'm curious from your seat as an investor and someone who's worked in the industry, what do you think are the most components for strategic planning? Yeah, well, before I get started on that, I do want to tell you congrats on bringing your leadership on these topics and voices from industry leaders into a comprehensive how-to guide for decarbonization planning. I don't care if you're 10 years into your strategy or you're stuck on where to start. I think your book is a great resource. Maybe you should think about putting it in like a pocket-sized manual for folks. (laughs) We agree with the case you make broadly. So the goal should be to take net zero oil and gas production from the theoretical to the actual ambition to progress. And so setting net zero GHG emission targets or a a decarbonization strategy is the clearest signal the industry can send that it is serious about being part of the global push to reduce emissions and align corporate strategies with the energy transition. And Tisha, I like how you characterize it. Companies have three choices to address the transition. They can inform and participate, react, or they can sit on the sidelines and get left behind. And so as an investor looking at net zero goals, we believe the strategy needs to be credible, which means net zero targets need to be well-defined, complemented by interim targets and disclosures, and most importantly, accelerated. So the time frame is key, and the book does an excellent job encouraging companies and leadership to accelerate their ambition. Transparency is key. We need to understand the inputs, the outputs, and the progress. Investors don't expect progress every single year. We understand there are going to be setbacks, but it's all in how you package that narrative and unfold the progress for your stakeholders, that's key. And lastly, accountability. And I think EQT and and Toby Rice, they're featured throughout the book. 
and rightfully so, right? So, so they're out front on the topic, and we often refer to their executive compensation program as a great example for aligning net zero goals with executive incentives. I really like how you translated some of the ideas from the book into Cambridge's philosophy. You all have been leaders that I enjoy watching in the space out front in your own way, putting out white papers, putting out very clear directives to your portfolio companies. And Megan, you have such an interesting background, having sat on the other side of the table um, with companies and then now sitting on the investor side. I know from our conversations over the years that you um, care deeply, both about the industry and about the progress we're going to make in decarbonization. Can you talk about now in your seat at Kimmeridge, what are your leadership priorities over the next 10 years? Yeah, I'm I'm one of industry's biggest fans and, and supporters, but there, we still we still have a long ways to go to make sure we're extending that social license to operate and recruiting shareholders back to the sector, right? And so uh, as that pertains to my leadership priorities at Cambridge over the next decade, you know, we published as a firm the initial report charting a path to net zero in September 2020. And at that time, only one company had a net zero target. Today, as we survey 43 exploration and production companies, 16 have set net zero goals. And we observe a bifurcation across gas names and oil names, where oil names generally have longer dated net zero targets. There are exceptions to this, notably Civitas, Diamondback, and some of the carbon capture names. But over the next decade, we want to continue to engage with these companies with the goal of accelerating these targets and tracking absolute performance vis-a-vis these goals. What is the direction of travel for the industry, and are we on the right track? Early in your book, Real Decarbonization, you point out that leaders in the energy transition will outcompete. And I think that's true for both companies and investors. And so leading that energy transition means evolving our businesses and mindsets, a fulsome approach to assessing and mitigating risk, and capturing investment opportunities. But in the current environment, it seems we're caught between extremes. My goal is to stay at the table and bring others to the table, too. The politicization of net zero stands to show the discussion, collaboration, target setting, and announcements. And I want to preserve and encourage the industry's momentum to continue to lean into improving their environmental footprint. There's so much to unpack there. And I'll just start with the first the first um that stat you gave one company in 2020 with a net zero target and then two years later 16. I mean when we say the world is changing fast, the world is changing fast because having a net zero aspiration is is no joke, especially for a bunch of scientists and engineers um to come up with a plan plans for that. I really do love the way you all think about this, both for just preserving value of these companies. Um, But you're speaking really articulately about that need to preserve a seat at the table. These conversations go haywire without us because they can become untethered from reality. And it's so important to that we're at the table, but to be at the table, we have to be sharing these aspirations. And as you said, committing in some very uh, accountable way to this direction of travel. 
Let me ask you, Megan, about one of the biggest conflicts that we see within companies who are working on this. And that is, do I invest in my base business and reducing emissions, you know, doing the best business possible, or do I invest in these, these more transitional or new energies? Do I invest in uh, consortia around hydrogen or carbon capture or sequestration? Or do companies need to do both? How do you advise your portfolio companies or how do you assess their sincerity between those two really important but really different priorities? Oh, this is a great conversation to have. And I think first we have to acknowledge that the path to net zero is going to be different for everyone. We followed up on our initial report with a new report last summer where we outlined five principles for setting and delivering on net zero. And these principles primarily focus on what can companies do operationally to reduce their emissions. So I think that's the essence of of where we like to focus. However, I recognize that there are going to be some really unique investment opportunities that have the ability to scale and and really truncate the timeline on decarbonization. So from that standpoint, I would remind folks that the sector is still working to repair credibility with investors. We've had two solid years of strong cash flow generation, and that has translated into higher returns on and of capital. So investing in decarbonization opportunities adjacent to the core competencies of the industry makes a lot of sense on paper. The industry has the talent, the expertise, and quite frankly, the grit to lead the development and scaling on innovation priorities. But these investments ultimately have to align with the broader mandate to invest prudently or disciplined. Investing in decarbonization technologies has to fall under that same paradigm where the mission is return focused. So I think ultimately it'll probably be a mix of both, but we cannot lose sight of the industry's North Star on sustainable returns. So those are returns that can be generated over a long-term time horizon and sustainably in terms of the ESG factors. Yeah, I like that. And in the book, Toby Rice does talk about redefining sustainable in this context of sustainable also means that we can persevere over time uh, with business models that are that are going to last. If we're going to lead in decarbonization, we have to do so profitably. So I really like how you how you mix that. The other thing I think we can't really emphasize enough is that there is not a path for a company, an EMP or a midstream to decarbonization. They're going to have to really look at their culture, their core competencies, as you said. I like your reference to grit. Like what is their <laughs> what is their um, ability to invest versus maintain their core business? I think that's just going to be so important that the conversation we're having is the conversation that's happening around the table, that we're really trying to inspire that the companies engage in asking themselves these questions. So Megan, let me ask you, as companies are are sitting around the table thinking about their decarbonization strategy, you are out in the world with investors who aren't necessarily completely on board with oil and gas what do you think is coming next for EMPs in the context of decarbonization? Are there going to be changes around the expectations that external stakeholders are going to have for us? Well, I, I think the expectations continue to be the same. I think it all gets more sophisticated, though. 
So how we measure, how we calculate, how we account and report emissions. And I'm excited about the Veritas effort to create methane measurement protocols that will underpin a better understanding of our baseline and improve comparability across the value chain. I think also, and this links to our financial stakeholders, that decarbonization is going to get more inclusive, whether it's the regulatory environment or the scaling of technology. I think more and more companies across both the public and private spheres and the value chain are engaging on decarbonization. And I think maybe a driver for that is of the inclusivity is that emissions performance and environmental performance at large is now part of the M&A rubric. Lastly, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit throughout the conversation so far, but the polarization of ESG was likely inevitable, but the intensity of the polarization in 2022 was a surprise for me. And so I think in the short term, that may create a little bit of short-term paralysis, but I'm hopeful that the industry will, will be able to look back and we'll draw some parallels to what happened with the back and forth on Quad OA. So under the Obama era, Quad OA rules, and then those rules then got rolled back by the next administration. Ultimately, we saw industry align their reporting efforts with the rules even after they had been uh, rolled back. And I think that industry will continue to make progress on broad decarbonization strategies across the election cycle. Mm, That's really good to hear from you, because one of the hypotheses that we have at Adam and Teen that I think you're confirming your perspective on, but I'd like to, to just verify, is that in 2022, we saw this ESG backlash, for example, from red states. And then it had left companies wondering and probably investor groups wondering, like, are we now in the squeeze between a push to do more with ESG and net zero and and a push to do less? And uh, our, our advice to our clients has been, the direction of travel is still the same. Um, ESG will continue to be a priority because it's looking at these these macro issues that just aren't going away and that responsible companies are going to have to participate in, whether it's reducing emissions or human rights or sourcing of minerals, you know, things like that. Is that your takeaway as well, that although the there will be more subtlety in how we talk about the ESG with different stakeholders, that the direction of tra- travel will continue. Agree with you wholeheartedly, Tisha. So despite all of the attention, I don't expect these topics or performance expectations to go anywhere. Any period of extreme creates an opportunity. And the opportunity in front of us today is demonstrating a really consistent approach to how we're handling our environmental footprint. And I also think that that approach focuses on the relationship between risk-adjusted returns and ESG factors. And the industry still has to think through how it balances doing both. And really, ESG factors can help better inform how we approach risk and integrate that into our business. Mm, That's really interesting. Yes. So about a year ago, you and I had breakfast. (laughs) So one of our topics really influenced me and influenced something in the book. And I was asking you, what do you think is next? You know, after climate, you know, we talked about everything from water to human rights to supply chain. And I really started thinking in a more holistic way about 
the input, the the inputs to ESG and just this world, I, I would even say a web of stakeholders that companies have to think about. So they have, of course, policymakers, they have local governments, they have investors, they have their communities within which they operate, they have their employees. And now in this world here in 2023, if we're going to build anything, a community, whether it is pro oil and gas or anti oil and gas, pro uh, new energy or anti new energy, it almost doesn't matter. Local communities are going to expect to have a very meaningful seat at the table in how companies do their work, along with all these other stakeholders. So I've been thinking about this and and, and talk about it in the book as as uh, companies are really going to have to think about their world of stakeholders as co-creators, not like commenters. You know, we're not going to say, here's what we're going to do. Let, ask us your questions and we'll explain it to you. It's really going to be, here's what we're thinking. Help us make it work for you and your community and things you care about. I'm curious, one, if you see things the same way and you're welcome to push back. And two, if, if this informs how you're talking to portfolio companies, just about the timeline of getting projects done. Yeah, oftentimes the broader the stakeholder universe, right, the the harder it can be to get everyone on the same wavelength in order to drive progress, right? The the harder it can be to jumpstart projects and and move from ambition to to progress. I do think though that your thought process around co-creating with our stakeholders, whether they be the local community or something much broader than that, is going to be essential. So bringing along those external constituencies on the decarbonization journey, getting buy-in, understanding their expectations, understanding the role that they can play is going to be essential. I think if we take a step back, the last year has demonstrated the importance of energy security. And we have to approach the energy transition knowing we need affordable, reliable, and sustainable energy, which will probably come from all sorts of sources. And so we have to co-create with external stakeholders because the future of energy brings more energy to more humanity, more energy, most efficiently to the most people. And that's going to take more hands on deck to accomplish that. Well, and as you're talking, it occurs to me, Megan, that this conflict around ESG is a different form of co-creation where oil and gas leaders can engage as civic leaders with those who are skeptical about ESG to say, here's why this is important to our business. And here's why we're investing in whether it's direct air capture or hydrogen and actually be a part of co-creating maybe a less polarized atmosphere. That's probably a little Pollyanna, but I I tend in that direction anyway. Do you have any any, uh, reaction to that? So from my perspective, I share your optimism, Tisha, and I I think that ultimately where we meet our skeptics is through execution. And so demonstrating, for example, coming back to EQT, you know, replacing 9,000 pneumatics and tackling their largest source of emissions and complementing that with decarbonization investments along the value chain, I think really is a a great proof point for industry to highlight. And there are other examples with Oxy and DAC. And and so from my my position, I I view execution and showing not only are we shrinking our environmental footprint, but we're actually scaling up the technology to do decarbonization beyond our value chain. I think that is 
what it really takes to convince the skeptics is it's always going to be about execution first. That's great. You'll hear me say that again. And I'm just warning our audience that you'll be hearing that again from me. I love I love that idea, Megan. So one final question for you. The world is changing fast as we've covered. Leaders have to be evolving uh, their own style, their own set of priorities. As a, a leader in this industry, Megan, what are you doing differently? And also, what are you optimistic about? Well, transitioning from you know, working at companies and being under the thumb of, <laughs> of, of a lot of different stakeholders now to, to my role at, at Kimridge, you know, I, I think my biggest shift has actually been from the mindset and, and keeping that Pollyanna, I love that word, or optimistic view throughout all of the different partnerships we engage in, the engagement that we do, and making sure that so much of this is about how you approach the topic, how you engage with people, the words you use, the inclusivity of it. And then at Kimridge at large, you know, we we have a really unique advantage in that we have both public and private investments. And on the private side of our business, we have a deep technical bench and we're leveraging our engineering, geoscience and land teams. And I love working with these groups and we're integrating that expertise into our decarbonization efforts across our portfolio. And this helps us form a differentiated view on the challenges and opportunities to succeed along decarbonization. And this gives us a pragmatic approach to our engagement efforts on the public side of our portfolio and how we shape that dialogue. But again, so much of it comes to having that optimistic approach when you walk into the room. Megan, thank you for your leadership within the industry. Thank you. Thanks to Kimridge for also... um, playing such a key role in in the evolution of our industry. And thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Thanks, Tisha, for having me. I've enjoyed catching up with you. And and of course, congrats again on the book. It's It's a great book, a really valuable resource. That's our episode for today. Thanks so much to Megan for joining me. I really enjoyed hearing how Kimridge translates some of these ideas in real decarbonization into their expectations of portfolio companies, uh, the transparency, the accountability. So interesting to put it all through Megan's paradigm of her work. I would love it if you could take a minute to rate and review this podcast. And if you have read my new book and you have a moment to give it a rating on Amazon, I would really appreciate that as well. It helps other people find our work here at Adamantine. Uh, If you'd like to learn more about the book, check it out at realdecarbonization.com. If you'd like to learn more about our consulting work at Adamantine Energy, please check out energythinks.com. I'd like to thank my colleague, Adon Rubio, who makes this podcast possible. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health.